We have um, spoken a little bit already about this uh, understanding of the complementarity and the difference between the left and the right hemispheres of the brain and how that gives us some insight, perhaps, or some metaphor, anyway, into understanding, um, say, the parable or the story of uh, Martha and Mary and the Gospel, which is at a, you know, at a very early stage in Christian consciousness, a description of the relationship between the contemplative and the active aspects of both our humanity and of the spiritual life, the Christian life, the way. Um, just had a little physical reminder of that. How, how many of you are right-handed? Or oh, sorry, okay. <laughs> how many? I should be easier. So how many are left-handed? Just only three. three. Yeah. Yeah, that's so. Um, uh, so that's your active hand, and for the rest, the other, the rest of us, it's uh, our right hand. Any one ambidextrous? So take your active hand and put it underneath your contemplative hand, like that. So for most of us, take your right hand and support your. Uh, contemplative hand, your left hand with it, and just, uh, just lightly, and just feel what that's like. Just sit with it for a few moments. And then reverse it. Put your contemplative hand, most of us our left hand, underneath our right hand and support it in that way. Now, unless you're a very unusual group, you will notice a difference, yes? Kind of a difference in energy, or some people find it's more comfortable that way, one way, and less comfortable but more interesting the other way when you put your contemplative hand underneath your active hand. <coughs> so, of course, our active hand is the hand we normally shake hands with or... Uh, point with or defend ourselves with, uh, give the right hook. Uh, and the left hand must be there for some reason, not just to make us look unbalanced, but uh, we uh, uh, rely much more upon the, the right hand. And it seems as if in human nature, if we take the story of Martha and Mary, the uh, tendency, our orientation, is towards action. That's our, maybe at a certain stage in our early development, we have a, uh, a balance or an integration, a harmony between the inner and the outer aspects of our consciousness. Um, we don't make this distinction even. But of course, as we develop, become more complex, as we also become conditioned by our social environment very early and given great forces of competition and uh, achievement and so on, uh, we become more and more active-orientated um, or outward-orientated. Maybe we might end up just becoming a couch potato watching TV but um, it, it's outward orientated and, let's say, actively, more or less actively orientated. And uh, this imbalance then develops and can become extreme. We can become overstressed. This produces physical problems as well, as the hormones or the chemicals that are uh, produced in us through stress. Uh, become more and more um, damaging. Uh, so then we begin to look for a balance. We feel unbalanced, we feel 
discontented in some way, there's something missing, we don't know what it is, so we start looking outside of ourselves even more. We sign up for every kind of course that's going and uh, search the internet for, you know, six steps guaranteed to perfect happiness. Uh, the sixth step is always the one you, where you have to pay. Uh, so, so I think the story of Martha and Mary is uh, very relevant uh, to our, uh, ch the challenge that we face today as a culture. And this, this is why I think this, this uh, book by uh, Ian McGilchrist, which applies this neurology uh, of the brain to our culture, is so interesting. Maybe it's a little... Um, might seem a little simplistic, but it's actually it's a very thorough, uh, uh, I think, exposition of this approach. So uh, then we come on a retreat, we, or then we start meditating. And we discover that we would like to meditate because we feel this would restore the balance in our life and make us feel better and more open and more grounded in our relationship of love to God and to each other, to the world and to ourselves. And then we're surprised to discover that something so simple should be so challenging and difficult at times. And uh, we come up with all sorts of reasons why we can't do it or we are pursued by the feeling that we are failing at it, we're not good at it, we're not successful, is it worth doing? And so we have a rather complex uh, approach to, the, to what is a very simple practice and a very simple wisdom that we intuitively probably accept and, and, uh, and, and wish to trust. But we are much more complex than the teaching of meditation itself. So then we come on a retreat and that's a, another step or we join a meditation group which is a commitment of time. That's a weekly, more or less weekly commitment. That's already a significant shift of your resources. Probably one evening a week. Um, and yet, and, and nothing dramatic happens in this meditation group every week. It's not meant to. Uh, it would be difficult to maintain a dramatic event every week. Uh, and yet, something, for many people, draws them back to this group. Because, although meditation is a solitary practice, I can't meditate for you on your behalf, and you can't do that for me. And nevertheless, there's something uh, quite strong that draws people to meditate together. And I think part of this, this must certainly be the new experience of self that emerges, and there's even brain research into this if you're interested, the new experience of self as being more connected less individualistic, less isolated, less lonely. And so although meditation is solitary, it's not lonely. It's meditation creates community because it is solitary, strangely enough. Well, look at the monastery. That's, that's monastic, the monastic uh, archetype uh, is present in every, every uh, civilization, um, almost. Historically, it's, it, every civilization has developed some form of monastic uh, life. So there's something uh, about being together or being alone together or being in solitude together that is very expressive and strengthening to our humanity, to our relationship with ourselves and with, with others. 
So we come together maybe in this meditation group simply, simply to meditate together. Something Father John uh, emphasized uh, strongly in his insight into the meditation group uh, dynamic, which is that the most important thing of the meeting is not the talk or the discussion afterwards, although these are uh, valuable and enriching, but the most important thing is and keep the focus on the, on the meditation. That's why if you listen to John Main's talks, uh, the collected talks, which we recorded over a five-year period, uh, the two meditation, uh, the 250 of them anyway, uh, which we recorded at the two meditation groups meeting at the monastery every week, uh, you'll see they're much shorter than my talks. Uh, and he would talk maybe f 15 minutes, sometimes even 10, but usually maybe 15, 20 it, gets, it would be long for his talks. And the purpose of the talk that he gives, and not everybody tunes into, into it, you know, uh, because if you approach these talks as if you're looking for interesting information that you didn't have before, you know, once you've heard them, <laughs> then you don't need to hear them again. But uh, on the other hand, if you understand the purpose of the talk is not only to you know, to, to touch your mind and to give you some insight and refresh your motivation by deepening your understanding a little of what you're doing, but it's also to prepare you for the meditation period. And so if you listen to the talks, you'll see how they, they lead you, and he's leading himself too, in a sense, uh, to this point where words stop, and the mantra begins, and we go into silence. So you, you know, I know many people who listen, and I do as well, listen to John Main's talks in the car, but I don't start meditating immediately after the talk <laughs> if I'm still driving. But so there's, there's a benefit, uh, I, I, I find, from listening to them, many people do, uh, in themselves. But if you really, um, if you really see their context, <coughs> It's linked to the, uh, to the beginning of the meditation period. In the same way, I think, I suppose, um, the divine office in monastic life was, was seen originally as a preparation for oratio pura, or as a, as a, a lead-in to pure prayer, to meditation, to the prayer of the heart, to silence. And that connection got broken. So then the, uh, uh, the, the, the office became a beautiful work of art. You know, the Gregorian chants, one of the great achievements of Western music, uh, so beautiful and powerful. Uh, but uh, it became almost an end in itself. It became a, a form of prayer in itself. But the connection, the simple, direct connection with, the, with meditation, with the silence, with the heart, um, got weaker and weaker. So it's always important for us, I think, to, to remember the, this sort of complementarity between words and silence, between action and contemplation. So then you come on a retreat, and this is another step uh, into allowing your contemplative side to support the active side. Okay, so now you've taken a whole week to do nothing, you know, you're not making money, you're not... Uh, solving problems, you're not looking after your families, I mean, you're thinking of them and loving them, but, you know, this is not an active week. But it's not exactly a, a holiday at a five-star hotel either, if you like that sort of thing. So, uh, 
It's a learning, really, just to allow this contemplative aspect of yourself, which you have already become familiar with, to support the active side and trust that and learn from that. Now, I was thinking this morning at breakfast as I was watching uh, several people um, checking their messages. St. Benedict says in the rule about wine, he says, in the good old days, he says, so this would be the Desert Fathers, uh, there was no question, monks should never drink wine. As Buddhist monks, of course, uh, don't touch alcohol. But uh, Benedict was Italian, of course, so uh, he said, uh, as today, we cannot convince people, we cannot convince monks not to drink wine. We can't do it. Uh, at least we recommend, we insist actually, he says, uh, we prescribe that it should be done in moderation. And we therefore prescribe that monks should not drink more than one hemina of wine a day. And for a long time, there's an argument about this, but basically we don't know for sure what a hemina means. <laughs> which is a very Benedictine way of dealing with an intransigent problem. <laughs> Intractable problem. So, uh, anyway, I leave you to draw the conclusion from that with regard to your mobile phones. I'm sure he would say it is quite, you know, it, it, ideally when you are on a retreat, uh, as when you are during your meditation period, uh, during your meditation morning or evening, when you are on a retreat, uh, you, you should not be online. But because that is a, you know, that's a, that's a distraction. And it's, it's not just a distraction. It's, it's not allowing yourself actually to fall into the great space that is briefly uh, available for us. Now, if you have somebody in hospital or you're ter terrified about the collapse in Sterling that may happen tomorrow, um, <laughs> then maybe this is what you have to do. But um, uh, I think it's it, because we are so familiar with the active side of ourselves supporting the contemplative side, uh, we need to exert some extra uh, awareness and thoughtfulness about keeping the balance or actually strengthening the balance for when we go back. Now, certainly it's, this is helping. The fact that we are here doing what we're doing is a help to strengthening the balance uh, later, I hope. But anyway, as uh, people, now there is a retreat we do called the school retreat, school, school of meditation retreat, which is a, a seven-day retreat, which is which is uh, uh, completely silent, and where we have no, uh, absolutely no uh, um, online activity. I mean, if there's a phone in the house. If anybody is in trouble, they can, but. Uh, we, we have a retreat like that. But so, maybe some of you might be attracted to do that at some point. Uh, but it's, 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 a, it's a deeper level and simpler level. And anyway, be, be conscious of that if, if uh, and try to uh, keep it to one hemina. Now, a time of uh, retreat or 
a, uh, the times of meditation in our daily life um, have often been compared with the, the Shabbat, the Sabbath day, the seventh day on which the Lord rested from his work of creation. There's a very powerful image, too, right at the beginning of the Bible, biblical wisdom, that God breathes a big sigh of relief, having worked for six days, and uh, then takes the day off, takes a day off. And what does, it, what does that say about creation? What does it say about our human creativity? The necessity we have for um, rest. Not just relaxation, but the, the rest we, I was talking about the other day, that hezekia, which allows deep change to take place, which is not just superficial change, temporary change, a change of mood, but a deep structural change uh, uh, with deep within ourselves at a level which we cannot necessarily observe. The kingdom of heaven is like someone who planted a seed in the ground. He went to bed at night, he got up in the morning, day by day. The seed grew, how he did not know. But then it began to produce fruit, or the first little signs of of, of, of germination and the little shoots of green breaking the soil and then the, the stages of growth and eventually the fruit and eventually the seed within the fruit and eventually the harvest. But here's, this, here's a very beautiful wisdom that Jesus gives us in this parable about the kingdom of God that the seed what is the seed we're planting? But that seed grows how we do not know. So maybe in this context, we could say that the seed is our daily meditation, or the seed is the mantra. And we are planting it and allowing it to grow, but we're not able even, or it's not appropriate or necessary or possible to observe that growth. Whereas, of course, if you are in a bad mood, if you're feeling depressed, if you're feeling really angry about something or really agitated or you're feeling very frightened about something or you're feeling whatever, uh, you would like that state of mind to pass and get back to what we prefer to be like, to be in a healthy, we would say, healthy, positive state of mind. We feel better. There's a very nice little uh, clip from a, 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 some children at the end of a video we've just made, Leo has just made, on the 25th um, anniversary of the world community. And it ends with some children speaking about meditation. And... Um, <laughs> you know, out of the mouths of babes. Uh, this one uh, child says, very kind of serious looking child, he says, he says well, um, he says, I, I've noticed uh, if you ask people to do something before meditation, they usually say they don't have time. But if you ask them to do it after meditation, they will usually do what you ask them. This <laughs> is insight into the change of mood that happens uh, you know, as a result of this work of meditation. And uh, then we end, actually, with, a, with this uh, very young child. I don't know, three, about three, do you think? A bit old, three, four, maybe. And he just, he just says, well, you know, uh, meditation, you just close your eyes and you feel very relaxed. <laughs> okay. So what more do you need to say? So uh, 
we're talking about a difference between a sup uh, uh, what you might call an observable and, in a sense, superficial, not unimportant. It's important what kind of mood we're in, what kind of state of mind we're in, especially if we are habitually in a state of anger or agitation or fear or depression or compulsive behavior, or then yes, it would be important that we try to change that state of mind because it's something's got stuck, something has got too repetitive, and we need to break it. So, okay, so I'm not saying these are not important, but there, even when you do notice that your state of mind the temporary state of mind has changed for the better, there is another level of change taking place, which is a transformation. And this is where we enter into the meaning of the experience. The experience is obvious enough. You don't have to be a genius, you just have to be th f four years old. Uh, to observe the, 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 the experience of meditation. But the meaning is also part of the process of transformation. And so, later, we, we try to understand the full significance of the experience that we are being led into, and this is what Jesus calls the kingdom within. And so as we go in deeper into this uh, center of transformation, which is also the hezekiah, the stillness, where it seems that nothing is happening, where it seems there's no movement, and where it seems that uh, there is just repeti repetition, but no change, here, actually, is where the deepest transformation happens. So this is the Shabbat, the Sabbath rest. And that was embedded in our cultures. Well, actually, I think the Jewish culture was the only one that had a, had a day off in the ancient world. The great, I think I'm right in saying that. And... Uh, but it, did, it has, it has uh, caught on quite widely, although, first of all, lost in, uh, certainly uh, in the Christian world or the post-Christian world. 1994, the Sunday Trading Act in Britain allowed six hours, it's kind of a very English um, compromise here, uh, allowed six hours of trading uh, between 10 in the morning and 6 in the evening. And the government has tried to bring in, uh, for the sake of the economy, uh, a complete um, freedom in Sunday trading so you can, all the big stores can open and everybody can spend even more time shopping. And actually the government's been defeated on that, I think. So what have we lost culturally in that? I mean, the churches, I suppose, I'm not sure, objected to that law, but they didn't have a very strong voice and probably the Lord's Day Observance Society was not the strongest influence on, on public opinion. So there wasn't much chance of th this uh, being uh, corrected, although I think their argument wasn't that this is against the Fourth Commandment. It was actually to do with family that the idea of having a day where you don't work is very good for family life. So, yeah, where you're not working or shopping. And, um, uh, the, and that is actually what the Shabbat means for the Jew. It is about family. So you're not allowed to do sewing, baking, weaving, tying or untying, you can't write two letters in sequence. You can't build. You can't knock down. You uh, can't make a fire. You can't extinguish a fire. Uh, you can't uh, hit anything with a hammer. And you can't transport anything in public. 
And there's a whole lot of other things. Those are just a few of them. So, and yet, despite the negative sound of these prohibitions, the Shabbat is seen as a time of joy and peace and celebration and, uh, and of course, of family life. It's also, as it happens, the day on which you are expected to have sex. Yeah. So it, this is a day of, of uh, celebration and joy and peace. And we withdraw from uh, these other activities of work in order to enter into that recreative and regenerative experience of contemplation. That's the idea. But contemplation, not as something that's seen as ascetical. The Jewish tradition doesn't, doesn't put as much emphasis on the ascetical uh, as, um, as the Christian tradition. But anyway. So we could see meditation then as this Shabbat moment or dimension in our lives, not only once a week, but daily and twice daily. And so we have a little Shabbat, uh, morning and evening, that allows this work of God to be completed in us. Change is the result of work, and work brings about change. We can't destroy energy or increase energy, but we can transform it. So the kind of work we do is very important. The way we do the work is very important. And the kind of attention that we bring to our work will determine the quality and the outcome of the work. So you're, if you're not paying attention to what you're doing, you know, you make a mistake or your work is very imperfect. Attention itself is a kind of work as we realize when we meditate. It's not just relaxation. And what's interesting is, is that by the time m most of us start to meditate, uh, we're looking for relaxation rather than spiritual work. A child, uh, I think, is able to understand and do the work of meditation much more readily and lightly and easily uh, than us because a child sees it as a kind of play. It's playtime in a certain way. And children are very uh, conscious, of course, of games, and, even, and they start playing or creating space for games when they meet other children. And games are defined by certain guidelines or rules. And if the other children don't play by the rules, then there's a big outcry or a big fight or outrage. Because without rules, there is no game. It's just chaos again. So I think uh, the, what seems to us like the big discipline of the mantra for a child is probably a very beautiful, simple rule that they don't uh, think about or analyze very much. But when they start to play meditation, and they start to say the mantra, they immediately have access or they immediately <coughs> have an experience. And they just slip into it. I'm not saying, I, I don't know, uh, if they find it always easy. I'm sure sometimes, it, it, depending on how distracted they are and so on, it will be more or less difficult or easy, but generally speaking, it seems to me with children that they like it immediately. They need a little bit of help to get into it, but then you'll find 
that they will just do it on their own. We know that. I got a picture the other day, a photo somebody sent me of, um, of their two children, I don't know, about eight or nine, a boy and a girl, meditating on a wall in the parking lot of Disney World in Florida. <laughs> and it was the evening. They spent the whole day in Disney World, and they were exhausted and, you know, agitated and had a good time, but they were very tired. Then when they came back, uh, they couldn't find the, the car. So then things began to get, you know, began to unravel a bit. And uh, so when they, when they got to the car, the parents were really surprised when the children said, I think we should meditate before we set off. And they jumped up on the wall and started meditating. Now, nobody, it wasn't anybody else's suggestion, it was just an intuitive. If we're in this state of mind, this agitated state, which we don't like to be in, then let's, uh, let's meditate and we'll feel better. I think that's, what other explanation can it be? So, uh, as, of course, we, as, we, as time goes on, we get more baggage, we get more complex, we don't have that immediate um, capacity for, for, for wisdom, really, practical wisdom that the child, those children had. But Jesus tells us, because he was giving this teaching to people like us, not to little children, that unless we become like little children, we will not be able to find this experience again. We will not be able to enter into the kingdom of heaven. We have to find again, obviously at a higher level of evolution and consciousness, we have to find again this childlike capacity to see work as play. And to accept the discipline inherent in the work, the rules, as simply uh, a necessary and obvious uh, aspect of it. There wouldn't be any work if there wasn't some kind of discipline inherent in it. And I think this is why when we do start to meditate, <laughs> This is interesting. It's okay. It's not, it's not so interesting, really, but... Uh, yeah, <laughs> so, uh, as, as, we, uh, as we do uh, learn or relearn this uh, spontaneity, this being in the present moment, the sense of connection between different levels or layers of consciousness, and we have this wisdom to be able to say, this state of mind I'm in is very unsatisfactory. I'm not happy. And actually, I'm supposed to be happy. Maybe not, you know, happy clappy all the time, but I meant basically to be happy. That is my true nature. And when I ha am happy or do experience this, I'm in touch it's because I'm in touch with my essential goodness. So that is natural for me. It's not something I have to go out and buy, or I have to do something very complicated to acquire. It's actually just a question of being still, of being, and allowing the true nature to surface through the layers of agitation or complexity or resistance and illusion that have built up and to break those down, to dissolve them little by little. That's the growth of the seed in the ground. How we do not know, but we, we know that it's happening. So this is a work, this is a kind of work. But it's a, a delightful work. St. Benedict calls the regular times of prayer of the monastery, the work of God. And it's not, uh, and of course he sees this as a preparation. It's a little rule for beginners that he's written. He reminds us of that strongly. 
This is a little rule for beginners. It's, a, it's the boot camp, it's the, it's the elementary school. And what we learn through, through these, um, this, this work is to, uh, to discover and allow the inner work to take place. Which is why he says significantly, he doesn't talk about meditation directly, although he does indirectly, the prayer of the heart. Uh, but he assumes, of course, that this is the purpose of the whole thing. Just in the same way that St. Teresa said, the Navishat, the one-year Navishat, is the introduction into contemplative life for the religious. And Benedict says, after you've, 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 you've got this basic work done, you've got the discipline, you're practicing some of the mindfulness of the life. You know, that's what the first uh, year or few years, maybe, of the monastic life is, is a training in self-discipline, in uh, other-centeredness, in respecting the presence of other people around you and being with them not isolating yourself from them, but being with them, but also restraining yourself from interfering or making noise or, or you know, being selfish. So community life, like marriage or family life, uh, has this uh, civilizing effect. And uh, the taming and training effect uh, on our natural egotistical tendency to just put ourselves at the center of reality. And so, so the whole purpose of this, though, for Benedict, is not as an end in itself, but it is to release within us. That's why he recommends uh, the conferences of Cassian to be read in the refectory. I don't know what we're reading in the refectory now, Dom Uga. I couldn't follow it yesterday very well. Oh, is it? Evening. Oh, in the evening, though, no, but in the... Uh, morning, uh, I would say no. It's the example of uh, Abbot Celestino, uh, Celestino Colombo, uh, who mainly okay. was the Abbot of Merendinara, but he was the chaplain of the Sisters of the Blessed Heart, of the... Of the, of the from the people, you know, coming from Caterina... Of Siena. The oh, no. very contemplative woman of the 15th century. Siena, Catherine of Siena. No. Anyway, okay. So. No, no, I know it's nothing to do with Cassian, but anyway, but he does, he, uh, but Benedict says in the rule that the conferences of Cassian and the 10th conference is the one on meditation that John Main, uh, that struck him like a <coughs> bolt of lightning. Uh, that these conferences of Cassian, there are 24 of them, should be read continuously in, uh, in the monastery. So the monks were constantly being reminded of the, the goal of the monastic life, which in the first conference it says, the goal of monastic life is continuous, is, well, he says it is, there are two goals. He says one is um, the kingdom of God, the other is could be seen as purity of heart, and that can also, both of those could be seen as continuous prayer. So the goal of the life is to be, to break through into this childlike state of, pure, of um, continuous prayer. So, uh, so, this is, so this is the reason, this is the meaning of the work whether it's the Opus Dei of the monastery uh, or whatever other kind of work we do. In, in fact, uh, we all, everybody goes to work, does some kind of work, whether if it's, whether it's uh, building a financial empire or whether it's uh, making a home and running a family or running a little shop, whatever it is, we all work at something or write. Um, this is, but for, 
whether you're in a monastery or not, this is the work of God that you are doing. God's work, allowing the seed to grow in you. And uh, monks also call the, the going into the choir for the regular times of prayer, the office. So you may go to another kind of office during the day with uh, photocopiers and computers, but it's, it's your kind of office. So the way you do your work and make it the work of God, the transformative work of God, what, what creates that? For most people, this connection, this understanding of work and the meaning of the office is, is, com is completely ridiculous. It's got nothing to do. Monastic life is kind of a useless uh, running away from the world, they would think, and, you know, an office life or work is uh, going to be highly stressed and highly competitive, and, you know, if you enjoy it, it's at a very high cost, probably. Um, intense. So, the idea of work. This is what uh, the Bhagavad Gita says. Set your heart upon your work, but never on its reward. Work not for a reward, but never cease to do your work. Do your work in the peace of the way and free from selfish desires. Be not moved in success or in failure. Meditation is an evenness of mind, a peace that is always the same. Work done for a reward is much lower than work done in wisdom. How poor those who work for a reward. In this wisdom, we go beyond what is well done and what is not well done. Go therefore to wisdom. Meditation is wisdom in work. So, one of the changes, I think, we, uh, in fact, a transformation that we will see happening as a result of this work of meditation is uh, to an, a change in the understanding of how we see our work in life, our daily work, how we make our daily bread. And it may take some time before we get to that wisdom that is described here, which is also the wisdom of the, of the gospel, which is the wisdom of working for its own sake with your heart fully in it, Give your heart to your work, but don't get attached or worried about the reward of it. So do the work, put your whole self into it, and then take your whole self out of it. And what is left is good work. And that applies, we learn that, through the practice of meditation itself, in the very, very simple work of saying the mantra. Remember, John Mayne says, come to your meditation without demands or expectations. This is, this is simply a reflection of what Jesus says about letting go of all our possessions. And uh, 
renouncing oneself in order to follow him. So uh, it, it may take us some time before we understand or we can actually do that, come to the meditation without demands or expectations and yet doing the work. Saying the mantra uh, with our whole heart and entering into that, the experience that it invites us into. It may take us some time, but learning that is learning wisdom. And we don't just learn wisdom for the times of meditation. If we are learning it in those times of the work of meditation, we will inevitably be working in that same wisdom or living in that same wisdom um, in between the times of meditation. So that's why a time of retreat like this is such a, a good opportunity to recognize that you don't, you know, that, um, that the times of work when we sit down and do the meditation together flow over into every other aspect of the day and that we don't, you know, as soon as the talk is over or as soon as the meditation is over or as, you, don't, you don't sort of flip back into the superficial distracted mind that we all have, myself included. But uh, we learn a little more, hopefully, as the week goes on and as, you know, year by year, we learn to be able to maintain a steady mind. This tranquility that all the great contemplative uh, teachers and wisdoms uh, speak about. That steadiness of mind, that mindfulness in action, that is a result of our work pure work, pure because it is without demands or expectations. So I was talking yesterday also about uh, Meister Eckhart's um, first sermon where he speaks about this uh, as becoming pregnant with nothing, going into this nothingness or no-thingness not nothing in a negative sense, it's a lack of object orientation uh, into this no-thingness that in which God is born, in which God is born in us. And God also allows us to be born as his word. And so this is the work. This is God's work in us, but it is our work to allow this to happen, to embrace it and to create the nothingness or the no-thingness, the silence, the attention in which God can do this, wants to do it, and it will happen naturally. And uh, Eckhart insists that we all have this potential, so I ended yesterday by saying, what is it do you think that triggers this potential? Well, the earlier the better. That's why we teach meditation to children. Um, I think you could say that, uh, and Eckhart says, that what makes this happen is the experience of detachment. Just letting go. Really letting go. And if you read Jesus' teaching on prayer, you'll see that's what he's teaching. Let go. Let go of external rewards. Go into your inner room. Let go of your constant words, our, our constant chatter, and thinking the more we say, the more we are communicating with God. That's why we desperately need to bring contemplative space back into our liturgy, into our public worship, into our mass and 
office. So let go of words, he says. And then he says, let go of your anxieties. And we should spend a lot of time thinking about that. Do not worry, he says. Now you say, well, that's easy to say until you've got something to worry about. And when you've got something to worry about, of course, you, you do become deeply and painfully attached to that anxiety. And it may seem to overwhelm you and to become the most important thing in your life. It colors everything. You see everyone and everything through, this, through the, the filter of this anxiety or this worry. Whatever it is, health or personal relationships or whatever. But the teaching here, and it's a universal teaching, is let go, begin to let go, try to let go, and you will eventually, of the attachment we have to this worry. And when you, if, if we could put our constant flow of distraction under a microscope or freeze it for a moment and say, what are, what's actually happening in our minds at this moment that's preventing us from saying the mantra like a child? What's, what's blocking us from doing that? We would probably find, you know, it's pretty obvious things. We, problems that we're trying to solve. Old problems or new problems? Or future problems? Because we are so used to having problems and to be in a problem-solving state of mind that even when we don't have any problems, we start imagining problems that will happen. And I'm not saying these are, sometimes these are big problems. Anxieties and worries and sufferings in our life or losses that we've endured. But the time of meditation is the time to let go of those worries, anxieties and problems rather than trying to solve them, which is what we habitually and as a, reactively do. Solve problems, past problems, present problems or future problems. That is actually exhausting and de-energizing after a while. Sometimes, probably quite rarely, you actually may work out a solution to a problem during your meditation. But that's quite rare, and if it does happen, you may have forgotten the solution by the time you uh, <laughs> end the meditation. But, uh, but generally speaking, this is the teaching of Jesus. Let go of your worries and anxieties. Let go of thinking about the future. Set your mind on God's kingdom now in the present moment. So this is, this is, what, um, this is what Eckhart and the, and the Bhagavad Gita, for that matter, and the Gospel tells us the first step into the fulfillment of this potential that we have to allow God to be born in our soul and for us to be born as God, he even says, is uh, detachment. Taking that step back. And isn't that just what we do as we learn to say the mantra? And as John Main once said, we have to learn to say the mantra. We have to learn to be content to say the mantra. It's an important point, so just for its own sake, to be, as the Christian tradition says, to recognize that prayer uh, is good in itself. We don't justify prayer by getting our petitions answered. <coughs> Origen said, praying itself is good. We do not pray uh, 
to get our desires uh, fulfilled, to get our petitions answered, but to become like God. We do not pray to fulfill our desires, but to become like God, he says. And then he adds, praying itself is good. So be content to do something that is good in itself. As you would, those of you, you know, with children or with your grandchildren, playing with your grandchildren, most of you, playing with your grandchildren is good in itself. You don't have to justify it. Maybe you say, well, this is good for them because it's creating a good bond relationship with me and, and I'm giving them some training. And, but basically, you be, wouldn't be the best grandparent if, if that was your conscious uh, motivation. You would be playing with them because it was delightful and good in itself. And like any kind of love or friendship or um, drawing or painting, uh, good in itself. Music. So, uh, right at the heart of the Christian understanding of prayer is, is that it is not about the fulfillment of desires, but through this gentle but very clear process of detachment, discovering the, 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 the spontaneity of the kingdom, uh, that this work is good in itself, you're not attached to the rewards, and then, of course, then you get the rewards. And this is what Jesus said when he said, you know, anyone who does this will have all of these benefits, all of these fringe benefits, houses, cars, well, he doesn't say cars, <laughs> houses, uh, friends, what does he say, all the things that you will get. But if you do it, if, if that's your motivation to get these fringe benefits, then of course you're not doing the work. So we have to find this place of, of detachment and radical, or another word is, of course, poverty of spirit, this radical detachment. And this is, that was what the Bhagavad Gita was describing in, our, in relationship to our work. Any kind of work. And uh, now, Whatever kind of work you are doing, whatever your vocation is, one has to do that work in this way, whether it's in the monastery, going to that office, or whether <coughs> it is uh, any other kind of office work that you do uh, in your life. Whatever our work is, it, it, we need to do it in this way. And this describes, I think, how this um, connection between contemplation and action is uh, beneficial to everyone, the left and the right hand, working together. Because if we learn to do this work in the silence of our meditation, the stillness of our meditation, the solitude of our meditation, that will overflow through the transformation, the change that takes place in us into every other kind of work we do in our lives, in our relationships with others. It must, it has to, of course. Because it's not a commodity. It's not something you get. It's who you have become. It's the way you are and the way you therefore do your work. So everything is affected by it. Everything you touch, everything you see. That's why the haikus are flowing out of you now. So everything you see or smell, everything is affected by this uh, change within our hearts. So. Tomorrow we'll look at, at um, some of the great uh, 
teachers, and this, this is what we mean by the teachers or the uh, mystics of the church or the, or the great saints. If, rather, you see, if you, if you, this is a good example. We have all these saints in the Catholic Church anyway. And the saints are useful to us because they are extra intercessors. That's how I was taught. So you want to get something out of God? Okay, you know, I'm just one little member of the seven billion species here, but up there, there is this elite group in the airport, in the, in the, in the first class lounge, who are very close to God, and you can, you can get your message through to, to him. So, find, find my uh, lost car keys, or cure me of this, or whatever it is we want. Hmm? Or old St. Anthony. So, uh, but that's not what the saints are for. I mean, it's a pretty pagan uh, paganization of the idea of Christian sanctity, but it works sometimes. <laughs> I'm afraid that's, that's the Catholic approach to these things. It's wrong, but it works. <laughs> so anyway, uh, maybe, maybe it doesn't work in the way we think it works. Maybe it's, but that isn't, that isn't really what sanctity is about. Sanctity, holiness, is about, first of all, being yourself. So every single saint is unique. It's a unique one-off. And you know, what do they have in common? Well, certain things you can make abstract, abstract um, statements about holiness. But really, every one of them is a one-off. And they, they worked their way through to this uniqueness and self-acceptance and self-knowledge through hard work and grace, as we'll see tomorrow when we look at a local saint here, St. Catherine of Siena. And this is, well, let's end with this famous prayer of St. Catherine of Siena. In your nature, eternal God, I shall come to know my nature. And what is my nature? Boundless love. It is fire. Because you are nothing but a fire of love. And you have given humankind a share in this nature. For by the fire of love, you created us, and your light gives us light. <laughs>